0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City. And uh, welcome to Christ City Church, particularly if it is your first time. Welcome to the first Sunday of April, which is the first Sunday of the second quarter of the year, because I keep track of these sorts of things. Uh, we're only one week out of, from Palm Sunday, our block party and community lunch, which I hope you'll join us for. And then two weeks out from Good Friday and Easter Sunday, which I also hope you'll join us for. Uh, all of that means we're still in Lent. Lent is the season of preparation leading up to Easter, and what we've been doing during this season, which ties into our current series in the Gospel of John called Life, Death, and Life Again, what we've been doing is sharing a video series called Stories of Life and Death, where folks from within our community have been sharing how those two things, life and death, have intersected in their lives and in their experiences. So check this out.
1: The death that impacted me the most was my grandfather. He passed away a couple years before I was born, and I've spent my whole life hearing about what an amazing man he was, how he was so musical, and I've seen how all 12 of us grandchildren are incredibly musical, and he's passed that on to us, but it's always been very clear to me the hole that he's left in our family, so I have been grieving him my whole life, even though I've never met him.
2: Definitely my dad's death has impacted me the most. Uh, He died when I was five or six years old. Um, I vividly remember uh, living with my mom, they had separated a while back, coming upstairs and she was cutting onions, but she was really crying, so I just assumed it was the onions. And then she told me that no, actually my dad had passed away. Uh, When I was five or six, they told me he died in a fire, uh, which was partially true. Um, But as I got older, One of my aunts uh, told me that my dad was a drug addict and that he overdosed in a crack house basically and was too high to get out. And then when the crack house caught on fire, uh, that's how he died.
3: I think uh, the death that had the most impact on me was my father's death. And that occurred when I was 16 years old. And his death changed almost everything in my life. And not for the better. Um, It put my mother and I into a lower economic status for quite a long time and that was a struggle for us and I went through depression right when I was graduating high school and going into college so my high school years, my college years, uh, were hard.
2: People say I'm very much like him um, and that can be very joyous and sad at the same time because um, I have memories of him, but it means so much to me, obviously, to spend some time with him.
1: Legacy to me means having your life and the things that you care about and the things that you do um, impact the time past when you're gone, impact the world around you. Um, I think it's impact past your immediate spaces that you interact with.
3: I could look back and see how God had really cared for me in ways that I couldn't appreciate in the midst of my sadness and my depression. And I think through that experience, I was able to be understanding and sympathetic to people who had also suffered suffered loss uh, of different kinds. And I think I was able to extend myself as a Christian, as a believer in ways that I couldn't have prior, and although his death at my young age and his young age has a long-lasting impact on my life, I can look back on God's provision and not be uh, angry, uh, feel pity for myself, and I, I feel I was made to be stronger.
0: Life, Death, and Life Again is the name of the series we're in, uh, because Life, Death, and Life Again are what we have been studying and seeing and hearing and hopefully experiencing as well. Uh, We're in John 17 today, and normally we would stand to reverence the reading of God's Word and the MC would have read it for us, Todd would have read it for us, Uh, but I'd like us to do something different today. Uh, We're going to go through the whole of chapter 17, it's the longer passage, but what I want us to do is to read through it with one or two people around us. I want you to pull out your Bibles if you brought a hard copy of a Bible, or open up your apps, or Google John 17. Doesn't matter which version you have, Um, read a few verses at a time and then swap and let the other person read. If you would prefer not to read, you can say, I would just prefer not to read and, and, and go with that. And if you get done before everyone else does because you read faster out loud than other people... Um, we'll just talk about one or two things that stood out to you. So, John 17, go. Well, I don't know if everybody finished at the same time or if people just started feeling awkward because they were still going. But uh, John 17 begins with, after Jesus had spoken these words. So, it's probably helpful to know the context and specifically what those words were. Last week, uh, we had our first Kids City Sunday, so shout out to, to Nikki Wiggins and all of the uh, Kids City folks and, and all of the kids uh, for leading us in worship. Uh, and last Sunday, Jamin Chenoweth and, and Nathan Watson read the scripture passage and Brian Lomax unpacked it for us. In John sixteen, after Jesus promised that there would be trouble for his disciples, and promised his presence with them and his joy for them, the last few verses of verse of of chapter sixteen go like this. Jesus answered them, his disciples, he said, Do you now believe? The hour is coming. Indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I have said this to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will face persecution. But take courage, I have conquered the world. And then John seventeen goes, after Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and he prayed. So all of chapter seventeen is Jesus' prayer. He goes from addressing his disciples to praying praying over them. And what does he pray? Well, it's a it's a pretty dense prayer. I don't know if you you noticed that or you thought that as you were reading through it together. There are a lot of things I could address, particularly if I were to go through verse by verse, line by line, but since I only have so much time this morning, I want to look at this chapter through the lens uh, of what God has laid on my heart, and that's the idea of unity, unity. Now, the word unity doesn't appear in my version of the passage, it may appear in yours. In mine, it talks about being one or becoming one. Which is the same idea, since the word "unity" comes from the Latin "unus," meaning one. So, uh, there's a joke about unity. You may have heard it before. It goes like this: Once I saw a guy on a bridge about to jump, and I said, "Don't do it." And he said, "Nobody loves me." I said, "God loves you. Do you believe in God?" He said, "Yes." I said, "Are you a Christian?" Or he said, "Yeah, a Christian." He said, "Me too." Are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, "Protestant." I said, "Me too." Uh, what denomination? Baptist? I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? I said, Northern Baptist. I said, Me too. Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liberal Baptist? He said, Northern conservative Baptist. I said, Me too. Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, Me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912! And I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. (laughs) Apparently that joke was number 44 on GQ's list of top 75 jokes in 1999. (laughs) Because one, we keep track of these kinds of things. And two, because even non-Christians know how good Christians can be at turning difference into division. But it isn't just a Christian thing. It isn't. It's really a human proclivity. It's a natural sociological phenomenon called categorizing. Male and female, rich and poor, Democrat and Republican, straight and queer, black, white, Asian, Latino, affirming and non-affirming, single and married, working class, middle class, upper class, Christian, Muslim, Jew, for neurological ease and evolutionary safety, we categorize. We find ways to draw lines around who's us and who's them in order to figure out who's safe and who's not. But, as sociologist Christina Cleveland notes, the simple act of using us them distinctions leads us to prefer us over them. And as a quick aside, I would highly recommend Christina Cleveland's book to you. It's called Disunity in Christ. Uncovering the hidden forces that keep us apart. Here's the deal talking about unity in the church is not my most favorite thing in the world because, well, sometimes it feels like a pipe dream. Uh, you may have heard the famous words of the 17th century German theologian Rupert Meldenius. He said, In essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. But then we got caught up in disagreements about, well, what is really essential and what is really non-essential? And uh, you know what? Screw charity. We're right. (laughs) Right? I mean, honestly, when we look around all of the different Christian churches and all the ways we section ourselves off and all the issues we've splintered and separated over, all the ways we've forced others out or made folks feel so unwelcome that they had to start somewhere new, it's easier to name situations where we've failed than where we've succeeded. But in the face of our sin, in the face of our stubbornness and our selfishness that leads to separation, I'm so grateful that not only does the grace of God work in us and through us, The grace of God works in spite of us. So today I'm going to focus on what unity in the church means because that's what Jesus prayed for several times. Unity among his disciples and by implication those of us who make up his church. Verse 11, that they may be one. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Verse 22, that they may be one. Three times in the span of 12 verses, Jesus prays for unity, for oneness among his followers. It must have been pretty important to him. Not surprisingly then, unity is a theme that Peter and Paul and the other New Testament writers also emphasize. Peter says in his letter, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Paul writes about it in Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Timothy. You get the point. In Ephesians 4, this is what he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen? Amen. Unity in the church, in the body of Christ, is clearly important. But what is unity? What does it look like for us to see the answer to Jesus' prayer? Well, I want to highlight two things that unity is not, and then three things that I believe unity in the church entails, drawn from what Jesus says in John 17. First, real quick, two things that unity is not. One, unity is not uniformity. We've said this before, but it's worth reiterating. Unity is not uniformity. To be reunited with someone, for example, means we're back together with them in the same place, right? Physically, geographically, in in the same place but still two distinct people. Unity does not mean that the people involved are the same, or look the same, or think the same. When Jesus prayed that his disciples would be one, he wasn't praying that they would be the same one, that they would lose their distinctiveness, that they would become little clones, interchangeable with one another. You know, it's easy for us to lump the disciples into one faceless group. Twelve disciples, one group. And it's true that only a few of them get any major stage time in the Gospels, right? Simon, Peter, James, and John, we know because they're usually always hanging out together. And they were Jesus' inner circle of friends. Andrew gets a few lines. Nathaniel, too. Thomas, of course, gets pegged as a doubter for the rest of history for one perfectly understandable post-resurrection interaction. (laughs) Matthew has a Gospel account attributed to him. Judas, well, he was the bad apple of the bunch. What about the others? Well, Philip has a significant uh, account, uh, a story, uh, encounter in Acts. But what about the second James? What about the second Simon? What about Thaddeus, who's also known as Judas, but not Judas Iscariot? And by the way, you are welcome for your quick summary of all the 12 disciples. (laughs) How much do we think about all the ways they were different from one another. We we know, we don't know a lot about them, but we know some of them were fishermen, less educated, rougher around the edges. But Philip was clearly educated enough to be able to have a conversation with an Ethiopian court official. The second Simon was also known as Simon the Zealot, which may have meant that he identified with the nationalist anti-Roman cause and perhaps even with the violent resistance that was part of their ethos. Some commentators speculate that Judas Iscariot was also connected to that movement. How would they have responded to being named among Jesus' chosen twelve disciples alongside Matthew, a tax collector, a Jew who was selling out his own people and making a profit off of them by working for the hated Romans? You think Jesus might have had to navigate some conflict, maybe? You think Jesus might have been intentional in choosing such a diverse band of brothers? You think when he was doing the room assignments, he was sort of like... (coughs) (laughs) Each of them brought a very different perspective, a very different experience of God's saving power. And each of them lived out the gospel message in a different way. My wife Carolyn and I don't agree about everything. She is her own person with her own opinions and thoughts and experiences. Matthew Watson and I don't agree about everything. He is his own person with his own thoughts and opinions and experiences. To be one with them, to be one and unified with my wife, to be unified with my colleague and my boss, it doesn't mean we have to be the same or think the same. And that's a good thing, because I would want both of them to be like me. (laughs) And Lord knows, there are idiosyncrasies in me that shouldn't be replicated. There is baggage I carry that shouldn't be passed on. There is sin in me that makes me think I know and understand more than I do. And there is change that needs to take place in me. The fact that we are different means I get to learn from them about the ways that God has worked in their lives and that shapes my understanding of God and my awareness of how God might work in my life. And in fact, without the difference that they and all of you bring, I would venture to say that I am missing something that God has for me. I need you all. I need you all. We need each other for who each of us is right now and for who each of us is becoming by the grace of God. For the ways we are similar and for the ways we are different. Because there might also be something that God wants you to learn through me and through my experiences. It's not a one-way street. See, I believe that in the ways God made us different, He did so in order that we could experience through one another the fullness and richness of God. I believe that in the ways God made us different, He did so in order that we could marvel at the multiplicity of ways His Spirit works and brings about transformation and healing. I believe that in the ways God made us different, He did so because that's how we learn to truly love one another. Robert Putnam is an American sociologist who argues from his studies that for communities to thrive, they need what he calls social capital. And he says that there are two types of social capital, bonding capital and bridging capital. Bonding capital is the connections we build with folks who are the same or similar to us. Bridging capital is the connections we build with folks who are different from us. Communities need both to thrive. The challenge is, as Putnam laments, when he looks at takes America as an example, we've gotten more and more reliant on bonding capital, sticking to folks who are like us or who think like us, to carry all of the relational water, and so of course we end up in our silos, and in our corners. Sociologically speaking, we need both bonding and bridging capital. But that isn't telling us anything we shouldn't already know from what God has revealed. When Paul wrote that there is no longer Jew, nor Greek, male, nor female, slave, nor free, but all are one in Christ, he wasn't saying that we should ignore the things that make us distinct from one another, but that these distinctions should not divide us. That Christ and his life transcends all of these things, that bridges us in spite of those things, and it shows the power of the gospel to bring us together. Several years ago, right before I met Carolyn, I came to the realization, which I've shared here before, that the person I had been looking for, the ideal partner I was picturing in my mind, was really just me, (laughs) but female and better looking. (laughs) She would love the same things I loved. She would love the same sports and the same sports teams, the same pastimes. She would have watched the same movies. Read the same books, she would like the same food and love my same friends. She would share my politics and be musical and well-traveled. And upon realizing that, I asked myself why that's what I was looking for. And the answer that came to me was, so I wouldn't have to change anything. So I wouldn't have to give up anything. God, though, never intended for me to be just comfortable. To just stay where I was because God longs for us to grow in our love and in our ability to love. And we grow in that love not by staying in safety and comfort but most often when we are confronted with difference. Unity is not the same as uniformity. We see this even in the person of God. We believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community of equals, each distinct but each committed to the others, each in a relationship of self-giving, others-serving love. To paraphrase Bono and the band, you too, they are one, but they are not the same. The Trinity is our model for community, which means that unity is not uniformity. The second thing that unity is not Unity is not static. Unity is not static. And what I mean by that is that we don't arrive at some state of equilibrium, of perfect nirvana where we've reached the goal of unity and all we have to do is stay very still. So we don't tip off balance. Just like our faith isn't static but dynamic, Just as every morning or even every moment we have to choose whether we will make a God-honoring, life-giving decision or a self-serving one, so also unity has to be worked at and it has to be committed to. Because unity in the Bible is about relationship. It's about relating to one another and being in relationship with one another, even in spite of our differences. I once heard a counselor say the biggest obstacle to healthy relationships isn't our differences, it's how we deal with our differences. The biggest obstacle to healthy relationship isn't our differences. It's how we deal with them. It's how we stay in relationship. It's how we navigate conflict. And so as long as we are different, which is going to be a while, we will need to work at and work toward unity. In each of the New Testament references to unity that I quoted earlier, the surrounding text is about how to pursue unity. And it's super simple, but super challenging stuff, like being humble, putting each other first, forgiving each other, bearing with each other, carrying each other's burdens. You know, things that you don't just do one time, but you have to do over and over again. Unity is about relationship, and because it's about relationship, it's dynamic, not static. It's a posture, not a pose. So unity is not uniformity. Unity is not static. But what then is it? What I see in what Jesus says about unity in John 17 isn't that he's just calling for them to be one for the sake of being one. Unity in and of itself is not Jesus' end goal. Unity as Jesus' disciples means being united around something greater than themselves, something beyond themselves, something that binds them together. Just like a football team bands together and works together for the goal of winning the Super Bowl or a baseball team for the World Series ring or a hockey team for the Stanley Cup. What is our goal? What is it that unifies us as Jesus' disciples? What I think Jesus is telling us is this, at least these things. To be committed to unity in the community of Christ, the body of Christ, the church, means we are committed to unity in the character of Christ, the calling of Christ, and the compassion of Christ. Let me explain. First, to be committed to unity in the community of Christ means we are committed to unity in the character of Christ. In John 17, verse 6, Jesus prays, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. Some translations say, I have made you known. And the translations that just say, you aren't wrong, because that's the gist of what Jesus is saying, but I think it misses some of the force. See, in the Old Testament, one's name meant, as theologian William Barclay put it, the whole character of a person as far as it can be known. And he cites Psalm 9, verse 10. Those who, put, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name put their trust in you. Barclay continues, he says, Clearly, knowing God's name does not mean that those who know what God is called will trust him. It means those who know what God is like. Those who know his character and nature will be glad to put their trust in him. Unity in the church comes from knowing God. It comes from knowing God's name. But that means more than just being able to holler Jesus. Right? It's knowing what God is like. And that's what Jesus revealed. That's what he said in verse 6. I have made your name known. In other words, I have shown them, I have shown them what you're like. Which we know he has done because, well, Jesus is God. As it says in Colossians 1, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. As it says in the beginning of John's gospel, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that word became flesh and dwelled among us. And it is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Chapter 1, verse 18. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And a sweeter, more succinct definition of eternal life I have not found. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. To know. Not to know about. But to know. And to be in relationship with. To be in close relationship with. There are a lot of folks I'm connected to on social media and, and seeing their updates. It makes me feel like I know them. But there are only a handful of people I really know. Whose character... I could vouch for. There's only a handful of people who really know me, who are hearing my prayer requests and lifting those up, who know the moments I don't post on social media. When Jesus talks about knowing God as eternal life, he doesn't mention unity, but that's what he's talking about. Knowing God. Being in relationship with God. Knowing what God is like. Knowing God's character. And those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus are to be committed to the goal of exhibiting that same character, making that same name known in the ways we live as individuals and in the ways we interact as a community. And that means the way we go about things is important. To be committed to unity in the character of Christ means we agree that we will go about things the way Christ did. That's what the Apostle Paul was getting at in Philippians 2. Where he writes, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let the same mind be in you, and it's plural, let the same mind be in you all, the same attitude, the same character as Christ Jesus, and this is what it looked like in his case. Humble love, using his privilege on behalf of the powerless, being willing to die so that others might have life. See, unity in a community always involves giving something up, just as following Christ does. A preference, a prejudice, a perspective, letting it die so that others might live. See, right before Paul talks about what Jesus was like, he implores the church to be of the same mind, to have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Those are all several different ways of saying the same thing. Be united. And he goes on, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. What in you, which of your interests, might need to die so that others may live? Jesus calls us individually and as a body to be like him, to be committed to exhibiting his character, to emulating his humble love, to showing that we do, in fact, know him, know his name, know what he's like. Without humble love, unity within a body is impossible. And so in committing to unity in the character of Christ, let me suggest that this week we try to practice looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. That We allow God to stir us in care for those around us. Maybe that's you know, just reaching out to someone in your small group, or maybe it's offering to help someone run an, run an errand. Maybe it's, it's more surgical than that. Maybe it is asking God to show you what in you needs to die so that someone else might live? But, 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 our pride will say. Let me encourage you. Let God be your justifier. I can tell you from experience how challenging it is. But I also know from experience how right and good it is. Second, to be committed to unity In the community of Christ means we're committed to unity in the calling of Christ. The calling of Christ is the same calling that He gave His disciples, to be sanctified and sent. To be sanctified and sent. In the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said to His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And in John, we see it in the form of a prayer. Jesus says, sanctify them, his disciples. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for what have they been sent? Verses 20 and 21. I ask not only on behalf of these, my disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. That's us, those who believe in Jesus through the word of the disciples several generations removed. We would not be here if not for somebody else. Jesus was praying for us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for you and me. And it's not too far a stretch of the imagination that the eternal God may have had us in mind, even as Jesus was saying those words. Jesus prays that we might be sanctified, consecrated, which means made holy or set apart for the purpose of being sent as he was sent, to introduce others to the eternal life of God. Through relationship, through knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ. Now I know in a pluralistic society it can be hard to know what to do with a concept like evangelism because we rightly want to be tolerant of others' beliefs and we want to even be able to learn from them. We want to acknowledge humbly that we might not have it all together and that's right too. We've seen televangelists or folks who haven't exhibited the character of Christ in their efforts to share their faith. But the way I think about evangelism which comes from the root word euangelion, it means just gospel or good news, is simply I'm telling the good news of what God has done and what God is doing and what I believe God will do. And I can only tell it through my own experience. But that's the least I can do. In John 10, in naming himself as the good shepherd, Jesus already said, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be One flock, one shepherd. In John 11, he states his hope to gather into one the dispersed children of God. I want people to know Jesus because I think he's the way to life and truth. Because I think he's he's shown me the, the best way to live. And that was by loving me so much that he died in order that I might live. That we might live. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10 For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? There it is again the name of the Lord, what God is like. What does it mean for us to proclaim what God is like? Now, sure, we use our words to share our stories of how God has changed us. And sure, we use our voices to sing songs of the goodness of God in the midst of trouble. But we also share what God is like by pointing toward the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of Christ in every life and every sphere of life where what God wants to happen actually happens. I think that proclaiming what God is like is also saying in the face of all that's wrong in the world, hold up, there's a greater kingdom that we want to see here on earth and this is what it looks like and this is what I'm working toward. That's good news to me too. We are sanctified and sent just as Jesus was sanctified and sent so that all might know the grace of God, so that all might hear the good news of Jesus, and so that all might be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every dark corner of our lives, every dirty addiction that we hide, every broken relationship that we nurse, every bitter grudge that we bear, every unintended hurt that we have inflicted upon others, that all of it would be made new so that the world may know that you have sent me. To be committed to unity in the community of Christ means we are committed to unity in the calling of Christ. That we are unified around the hope that all might come into a life-changing knowledge of Jesus Christ. That we are one in the mission that others might know, through us even, the love of God shown in Jesus. None of us is exempt from this mission because that is how we show we are his. That is how we show we are changed. Why would we not share good things with others? Jean Vanier, who started the L'Arche movement of communities that care for folks with intellectual disabilities, he said this, God loves us and draws us into the mystery and the love of the Trinity. There we can rest in his love, but community only keeps its meaning if it remains open to mission." Community only keeps its meaning if it remains open to mission. In what ways, then, can we participate in Jesus' mission? It might be as simple as showing up next Sunday and serving our neighborhood at the block party. It might be inviting someone to church or to small group. It might be a conversation that you have with a friend who's not a Christian, not in a pushy way, but in a winsome way, taking time to listen to them and listen to their story and listen to their burdens and saying, can I share my experience with you? Or would you mind if I prayed for you? They might say no, that's okay. Finally, to be committed to unity in the community of Christ means we're committed to unity in the compassion of Christ. We might think of compassion as care, sympathy, or even pity, but the word compassion comes from a Latin word meaning to suffer with. To suffer with. Not at a distance, with. Not removed, with. Here's the thing, throughout his gospel, John talks about the world, in Greek, kosmos. And when he says that, he's referring to society setting itself up apart from God, or with a false semblance of God. And Jesus warns his disciples that the world will hate them as it hated him. Jesus prays that God would protect his disciples, because he's leaving them in the world. Jesus is clear that they don't belong to the world, that they are in the world, but not of it. But... Even though the world rejects Jesus and his disciples, even though it does not recognize the one who made it, even though it will be hostile to his followers, what does he do? Verse 18, I have sent them into the world. To condemn the world? No. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may know the character and the calling of God. And what is that again? John 3, 16. With all that we know about the world, we also know this. For God so loved the world. With all that we know about the world and how hostile it is and how against Jesus it is, for God still so loved the world. He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, Indeed, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might might be saved through Him. Christ, in His compassion, cares even in the face of rejection. In His compassion, Christ seeks the good of all of us. But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what does it look like for us to be united in the compassion of Christ? Well, let me suggest, and I'm not the first, that it means we consider where we stand or to be more accurate, with whom we stand. Father Greg Boyle, who started Homeboy Industries, working with former gang members and high-risk youth and recently incarcerated in the L.A. area, he said this, For Jesus, it wasn't about taking the right stand on issues. It was about standing in the right place. And that place for Father Greg is with the marginalized. He said, you go to the margins and you brace yourself because people will accuse you of wasting your time. You don't go to the margins to make a difference. You go to the margins because you want those voices to be heard. Unless there's a connective tissue born of tenderness, which is the highest level of spiritual maturity. Otherwise, love stays in the air or in our heads or in our hearts. Unless love becomes tender, there's nothing that connects us to each other. And that's God's dream come true, that you may be one. How do you obliterate once and for all the illusion that we are separate? For Father Greg Boyle, it's standing with those in need. For Jesus, he was standing with those in need. For us, standing with those in need. So we have to figure out, in the words of Howard Thurman, in his cut to the quick convicting book Jesus and the disinherited, what the teachings and life of Jesus have to say to those who stand at a moment in human history with their backs against the wall. Because because to those who need profound succor and strength to enable them to live in the present with dignity and creativity, Christianity often has been sterile and of little avail. How do we make room for those for whom room so often has not been made? How do we welcome those for whom a welcome so often has not been extended? How do we defend those on whose back so often others have trod, even unintentionally, even accidentally, but still too often? I'm not going to name specifics because I want the Spirit to stir in your heart, to bring to your mind what the Spirit needs to say to you. Who are the ones with whom God is calling you to stand? Who are the ones whom God is calling us as one body to love and care for? Because at the end of the day, it's about love. At the end of the passage, it's about love. Jesus says in verse 26, Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. That's the last verse of this chapter, the last verse of this prayer. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. Love is what undergirds the relationship between Father and Son. Jesus prays, you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's a long time, y'all. Love is what binds Jesus to his disciples. Love is what is to characterize the church. You know, sometimes I feel like I talk about love too much, but then I remember how easily we forget. That even I need to be reminded. It's love that is the character of God. It says God is love is love that is the calling of God. It was love that sent Jesus to the world to die so that we might have life. And it's love that is the compassion of God, the deep care and concern for us that drove him to suffer with us, to suffer as one of us, to suffer on behalf of us. I'm not going to pretend that one talk on unity will mean that we have it all figured out now. But this is what God has been impressing on me these last few days. And this is my prayer for our church, for Christ City Church that we might be united in our commitment to displaying the character of Christ and fulfilling the calling of Christ and demonstrating the compassion of Christ, that we might be one. Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make us one as you are one. Amen. I going to invite the band to come up as we move to communion. Every week we, um, we take communion as, as, as a church. And um, I want to read this from um, 1 Corinthians 10. This is the message version, the message paraphrase. Paul writes, when we, when we drink the cup of blessing, aren't we taking into ourselves the blood, the very life of Christ? And isn't it the same with the loaf of bread we break and eat? Don't we take into ourselves the body, the very life of Christ? Here's the thing. Because there is one loaf, (coughs) there was one Christ who was broken for us. Because there is one loaf, our manyness becomes oneness. Christ doesn't become fragmented in us. Rather, we become unified in Him. We don't reduce Christ to what we are. He raises us To what he is. We don't do this in our own strength. We can't do this without Jesus. We can't do this without a work of the Spirit. And so my my invitation to you, my challenge to you even, is that as we come and take this body and this blood, as we take, we'll give you the bread, you can dip it in the juice, There'll be a gluten-free station over here. As you take communion, sure, take it for yourself, for the grace that you need for today, for the reminder that you need that Christ died for you and so that you might know life. But also take it as a commitment, a rededication to living in the character of Christ. Living out the calling of Christ and embodying the compassion of Christ. Let that be the seal that there is one body and there is one one blood. And that is what binds us together. Jean Vanier, who I quoted earlier, he said, He said, community is not an ideal. It is people. It is you and I. In community, we are called to love people just as they are, with their wounds and their gifts, not as we would want them to be. Community means giving them space, helping them grow. It means also receiving from them so that we too can grow. It is giving each other freedom. It is giving each other trust. It is confirming but also challenging each other. We give dignity to each other by the way we listen to each other. In a spirit of trust, and of dying to oneself so that the other may live grow and give belonging should always be for becoming we just have the sense um, talking about committing ourselves um, to these the character of Christ and the calling of Christ and the compassion of Christ um, that there may be there may be folks here who who just need to commit themselves to Christ you'd be reminded that there's life there. And and you may not have made that choice. Uh, You may be kind of observing from arm's length because it's safer. You may just be trying to gather information. Um, But you haven't taken a step yet because it's risky, because you don't know all of the answers, because you're not quite 100% convinced. That's okay. But if you have enough to take the next step, that's all you need to do. Just have a sense that there might be somebody here or a couple folks here. God is laying in your spirit. Hey, come join me. And if that's you, if you are here and... and (laughs) You're fighting the temptation to bolt the minute I say amen. But you know that God is stirring something in you. I want to invite you. Our prayer counselors are going to be in the corners. They're going to still be here when the service closes. If you want to recommit yourself, because you've been walking away for a while and and you just found the courage to walk back, but you're still not sure, but, 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 but God is doing something in you and you want to commit yourself to the work of God, to the, the person of Christ, to his character, his calling, and his compassion, if you want to do that, we have prayer counselors available. If you've never been baptized, public declaration, this is, this is what my, I want my life to be about. I invite you to talk to one of the prayer counselors. We would love to I would love to, to, to stand with you and walk with you. Um, I want to ask us to do something a little bit different today. Normally when we close the service, um, all the lights come up and, and um, you know, the band plays something upbeat to, to send us out and, and we just start chatting. Um, what I want us to do today is, is, is keep the lights down and, and maybe the band can lead us in, in, in great are you, Lord, again. And then We're just going to give us space uh, to, to go where you need to go to, to pray with whom you need to pray with uh, to get your kids if you need to get your kids. But don't rush the Spirit. All right? If you want to have a loud, raucous conversation, you can, you can do it in the hallway. We'll, we'll shut the doors. Uh, God, I pray that, that, um, that your Holy Spirit would, would move in this place. you would disrupt our comfort zones and that you would, you would be the courage that we need to take a step, that we need to take. That you would give us the courage that we need to, to stand for what we need to stand for. You would give us the, the boldness to, to step forward instead of back. That you would give us the boldness to trust that you are our justifier, that we, we, we don't need to be our own justifier. to give us the boldness to live as if you really are the source of life. And wholeness and transformation that your spirit moves in mighty ways. God, we sang earlier that we asked you, Holy Spirit, to break out, to break our walls down. There are walls that are between us that need breaking down. There are walls around us that need breaking down. There are walls inside of us that need breaking down. And so, God, whatever it is that you need to do today, let us not leave without letting you do that work.